Um, John Irving dreamt of becoming a great writer. He dreamt of becoming a storyteller. The problem is, John Irving in high school, his best grade in English was a C minus. Took him five years to graduate from high school. And John Irving scored a 475 on the verbal SAT score out of a possible 800. Let me interpret that for you. It means two-thirds of us in this room scored better than he did. But John Irving went on to write a book called The World According to Garp, and he won a National Book Award. He wrote a screenplay called The, the Cider House Rules. Now, how does a guy that has a C- minus in English takes five years to graduate from high school, scores a 475 on the verbal score of the SAT. I don't have a National Book Award, do you? I don't have an Academy Award uh, to my credits. This guy said, I am going to dream and dream and dream and dream, and I'm going to accomplish my goals. Now, he did not know what dyslexia was, and he was dyslexic. He did not understand that some of you and I see letters and numbers differently than he did. And so he would, he would work an hour where it would take his other classmates five or ten minutes to read a story. He said it would take his classmates two hours to prepare for a final exam. It would take him five hours. Here's the point. When you want something bad enough, you will work hard enough. And here's what he said. John Irving's quote, it says this. To do anything well... You have to overextend yourself. Well, I want to talk this morning about your dreams. But I want to talk about a different dream today. Now, again, most sermons are broad. This one's going to be very narrow. This is like a country road. This is not a five-lane highway, in, a freeway in L.A. This is like your back, you know, woods, country lane, that if you're not careful, you run into the ditch or you hit the trees, okay? Very, very narrow lane this morning. I want to talk about your dream, because everybody in this room has the same dream, and everybody in the room has the same dream for the things that are out there, and you all have the same dream for the things that are where you can reach and touch, and you all have the same dreams for the things that happen right inside of us, right in here. So first of all, it's a dream about mastery. If you're honest, you dream about being really good at something. You dream about mastering something in your life. And all of us in this room, we have dreams and thoughts. How can I get really good at this? How can I get really good at my job? How can I get really good at my profession? And all it, it may be sewing. You may want to become a great seamstress, and you want to have your own line of wedding dresses. Or it could be knitting or crocheting, and you want to give away Afghans to unwed mothers. But it's a dream to become a really good seamstress. Or maybe it's a salesman. You're, 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 you're a good salesman, and you're like 15th, you know, on, on the scale, but next year you want to be 10th, and the next year you want to be 5th, and eventually you want to be what? Everybody does. Everybody in this room, now we can play humble and we're all good Christians, but everybody in the room, we dream about being a master and mastering something. Uh, I remember my grandfather, toward the latter end of his life, became a gunsmith. And he shot guns his whole life, but toward the end of his life, he got really good at making guns. We, we dream about mastering uh, something and becoming very well uh, uh, with our hands. Maybe it's with crafts, or maybe it's with building 
uh, cabinets, kitchen cabinets for your house. It's something that you deeply desire. You want to become a master carpenter. Or you want to be the best floor nurse. There's nurses, and then there's you. You want to be the next Florence Nightingale. Or you want to be that teacher, that teacher that's really good and sets those kindergarten kids on the right path. You have a desire. Sales, investing, building a business, selling a business and buying another. Everybody in the room has all these dreams out there. Absolutely. But we also have dreams that are like where we can reach and where we can touch. And these are dreams of family. You may be single. You may be an uncle. You may be an aunt. But how can you pour into your family? You may be in a connect group. You may have friends. You may be in a neighborhood. Every one of us wants to have family and friends. You're a mom. I've never met a mom who doesn't want to be mother of the year. I've never met a mom who doesn't want to be better, who doesn't want to be a great mom. I've never met a dad who really doesn't want to do better than this and and get better at, at being a father, grandfathers and grandmothers. Then there's right in here. So we got three different categories. We want to master our jobs our occupation, our work. We want to be really good at what it is that we do every day. But we also want to master parenting, our singleness, our connect group friends. We want to be able to pour. I want to be a great friend. But the third category is the toughest. And the third category is how do I master me? What's going on right inside of here and all the stuff and junk that's going on? This is category number three, and we'll get to that. Now, the question is, where does all this come from? Where does this desire to be really good, to be better, where does the desire to continue to advance and improve, where does that desire to be better and better and better and improve, your, where does that come from? Folks, it comes from the throne room of God himself. It comes from your heavenly father. Everything your father said, everything your father did, everything your father ever made, it was really, really good. And again, just a very narrow example of this would be you and how God created you. Psalm 139 says this, For you knit me in my inmost, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Before you were ever born, there was royal blood flowing through your veins. God had a plan for you, a design, a desire to make you something. There's a masterpiece in the making. He started inside of you. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that for well. Everything God made, he was a master at it. A master craftsman, a master painter, a master builder. God was so good. And your desire to be better, it comes from the throne room of your heavenly Father. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, before anybody could see you, before you were ever born, God knew all about you. God knew everything about you. He knew your DNA. He knew your sex. He knew everything about your life and how you were going to be. I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The master designer was designing you. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in, in your book before one of them came to be. God 
has a plan for your life. It's kind of funny. I don't know that you have to find your destiny. I think your destiny finds you. But when you th stop and think about how, how it all started for you and how you were created, your Heavenly Father had a divine plan for you. Now just watch this video. It's an amazing video. At about 10 days, you had a heartbeat. 10 days, your little heart began to beat. About 42 days, you had brain waves. Now, your brain may not work so good today, but it worked good at day 42. All right? It started off well. That's your heartbeat. Now look at the size of this little baby inside the mother's womb. I, you, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have 75 trillion cells. You have 206 bones. You have somewhere around 750 muscles, depending on the size, depending on your size. And all this, God created within you. God likes life, and God likes babies. And I believe the reason Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet is because this is the time where he is populating his future heaven. I believe there's coming a day when Jesus will come back. But until that day comes, he is populating the earth so that he can populate heaven because there's going to be no more reproduction and population in, 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 in uh, heaven. And so look at the life. Look at how God can cook. Isn't that awesome? You got little hands and little feet forming after so many days and weeks and months. Wow. The spine, the vertebrae. Look at the hands starting to form there. My friends, you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. And God can cook. Oh, he can. And so what I want to talk about again today is that little country road, that very narrow, narrow road. I want to take a field out there first and talk about some men in the Bible who took it seriously and got really good at their profession. And they're known as David's mighty men. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and these are on your app if you want to turn to the Harborside app. But these mighty men, David had 37 of them, and they became soldiers. They got good at soldiering. They mastered soldiering. And I love our veterans. I love our current soldiers. And I just want to ask you, if you're a current vet or a former vet, would you stand up right now? Because we want to honor you. Would you stand up? Well, you're going to love today because there's a little bitty chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 23 called David's Mighty Men. And these guys, these guys were like, you know, you watch Braveheart, and you know, Russell Crowe, and you watch, you know, uh, William Wallace and, and um, Gladiator, and you watch these guys. And by the way, are, are those not the two greatest movies of all time? <laughs> Braveheart 
And it's just unbelievable, and Gladiator. And so like, I've watched the television version of those movies like 35 times. Danita will come in the room, and she'll see me watching, you know, Braveheart, and she'll say, oh, I wonder how that's going to end, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, and I make fun of her Hallmarks, you know? She watches these Hallmarks, and all the girls watch the Hallmarks, and the guys are over, and as soon as the girls go in the other room, you know, we put on the lightning game, you know, watch somebody... You know, shoot somebody like Clint Eastwood or something. So, anyway, you, you and, and the hallmarks, you know how those end too, don't you? Oh, two people fell in love. It's amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. They fall in love and they get married. They live half. Come on, those aren't real. Good gravy. That's not. Anyway, here's a group of soldiers out of Second Samuel chapter 23, David's mighty men, and they are amazing. Here's the first section. These are the names of David's mighty men. And you don't need to learn all this guy's name. It's a long name, but just Josheb. He raised his spear against 800 men. Now, there's more than 800 people in this room right now. But imagine if there were 800 soldiers. Here's Josheb, one guy with a spear, one guy against 800 Philistines. One guy stood his ground with a spear. Oh, my gosh, he was amazing. He took them all down. Next to him was Eliezer. I think Eliezer is my favorite. Because everybody retreated around Eliezer. And Eliezer stood his ground and he swung the sword so long that his hand actually froze to the sword. He couldn't let the sword go. He had grasped the sword so long and swung the sword and wielded the sword that they had to help him pry the sword loose from his hand. Here's Eliezer. He was one of the three mighty warriors. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines. They gathered for, at Pastaman for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. So get the picture. Here's Eliezer with his army, and the army flees. They go back home. And here is Eliezer by himself, and he stands his ground. He mastered soldiery. He struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip their dead. In other words, the guys all came back, and there they're trying to help Eliezer get the sword out of his hand. I think it's a cool story. Maybe it's just to the guys in the room, girls, sorry, okay? It's a great story. Next to him was Shema. When the Philistines banded together at the place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. Again, he stands his ground. He took his stand in the middle of the field. He defeated it and struck the Philistines. I'm not moving. I'm going to be a master soldier. I take my stand. This is valuable, and I am not going to I am immovable. It's an incredible story here. And, and it just kind of goes on right down the list. And the next one is a guy named Benaiah. And Benaiah is a great soldier. It talks about two of Moab's top soldiers. He kills both of them. And the next line says, he kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Now, don't read over that. Benaiah goes into the pit where there's a 500-pound lion. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's a 500-pound lion in this pit, where am I going? I'm going that way. How about you, right? Not Benaiah. He comes back, takes a running leap, jumps into the pit, and he kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day. It reminds us it's snowy. Why snowy? Because four feet are easier than two feet, and he was more dangerous in the snow for a man than it was for a lion. Then it says he kills an Egyptian, the chief Egyptian. And it says the Egyptian's got a spear and Benaiah's only got a club. 
And it says that Benaiah snatches the spear out of the man's hand and he stabs him with his own spear. What a great story. Incredible soldiers. These guys got really good at what they're doing. Why don't you get really good at what you do? Why don't you become great? Sales, investing, nursing, carpentry, education, business. Why don't you get really good and become great and better and better and better? That's the passion of your heart. And every man and every woman in this room has a deep desire to get better and better and better. We also have a desire, though, within our families. Those two categories, we kind of know what to do with. But it's that third category that's all right here that we're not exactly sure what to do. So how do we move in that direction? And we'll get to category number three in just a second. I think, first of all, what you have to do is you have to define success. What, what is success? And everybody has to know what the target is, and so we all want to be successful. Nobody in this room wants to be a loser. We all want to be successful. So what, what is success, and how do you know if your ladder is leaning up against the right wall or the wrong wall? So just recently, uh, about a month and a half ago, about half of our family was together for an, uh, an outing, and I just kind of started the conversation, and I said, um, name for me the five most successful people you know. Who, who's successful? Can, can you name five people? Who would be the top five? And then the very next question from one of the young men was, how do we define success? And I'm, I'm going, yeah, this conversation is going the right direction. That's what I wanted to, somebody to ask. How do you define success? And we as a family define success in three different categories, three different ways. Number one, your faith. Number two, your, fi- your, your family. Number three, your finances. So if somebody's rich, but they don't have a faith, is that success? They're going to die after 70 or 80 years. What a waste. What a waste for a wealthy person who could be using their resources for the kingdom of God not to have any faith. How foolish it would be to have a faith and to have finances, but not work on your family. And wouldn't it be unwise to have a faith and to have a great family, but not go to work? And so we define success in our family as, as faith, family, and finances. And finances give you options. And so again, what would be your definition of success? That's a really good thing for your family to do. To walk, you don't have to take our definition, but to walk through this and to think about what is success. How do you know which direction to go if you don't have a target? Number two, take one step at a time. This is so true with, with everybody. If you're overweight, you lose one pound at a time. If you're out of shape, you have one workout at a time. If you are in school and you want to have a degree, you take one class at a time. If you're in debt, you get out of debt one payment at a time. Success is measured in steps. I can't step from here to the back wall in one step, but probably 25 steps I can get to the back wall. You see, see the point? And so success or are, are, are your, your mastery is always about steps. Number three. I really like number three, but you would think I'd write it like it because I wrote it. But anyway, number three is... <laughs> is, is Get around the right people. Now, this is different than putting people in your life. 
to help you. So stay with me on this. I want to talk about two different things here. Number one, getting, the, getting around the right people is different than putting the right people in your life. For instance, David had 37 men around him. George Washington had 33 aides. It's great. He had 33 aides that helped him do what he needed to do. What I want to tell you, talk about is who's ahead of you? Who's smarter than you? Who's more gifted than you? Who knows more than you do? You see, if you don't have any of those people in your life, you're probably insecure. You're probably not able to know how to go forward. And you won't get better if you don't have people who are better than you in your life. And so there's a, there's a stigma about this. It's like, my gosh, I look insecure. My gosh, I look like I don't know what I'm talking about. My gosh, I look like I don't have enough information. Let me ask you this question. Who knows more about your business? Not maybe you're small, but who knows more about business than you do? Who knows more about sales than you do? Who knows more about investing than you do? Who, who's a woman who's raised children who knows more about mothering than you do? Who's a father who's been a, who knows more about parenting than, than you do? Who, who prays more than you do? Who, who's a better prayer? Who has a better grasp of scripture in their life than, than you do? You see, when I was a younger pastor, I really didn't get this. I didn't really get the fact that I needed to have those men, I didn't have to look very hard or very far, who were ahead of me. I didn't really understand that, if, boy, if I just looked to those guys and hung around those guys, they know more than I do. Now, there was the burning desire within me to get from here to there. I would hear them preach, and I would think, my gosh, how in the world am I ever going to get from here to there? I would watch their leadership. I go, they, they are amazing leaders. I'm like down here. How can I get from here to, to there? And I began to then put some of those people who were ahead of me, and the desperation factor has to be greater than the embarrassment factor. And until the desperation factor is greater than the embarrassment factor, you won't get better. But you desire to get better. You want to master what you're doing out there, right here, and inside of here. And so this is different than putting assistance around you. This is not assistance. This is putting people who are better than you, who know more than you do. Just one really quick example of this would be Dean McSpadden, our CFO. Dean McSpadden is an accountant. He's a, he's a CPA. He's got all these different certifications and degrees in accounting. I sit down with Dean, I learn something about accounting. He is so far ahead of me with the finances and the accounting. Why would I not do that if I'm insecure? Here's the question. Do you have those people around you? So again, get around the right people. Who are the right people who can help you? Does that make sense? You got that? Okay, that's different than putting 33 aides like George Washington had around him. And why wouldn't you do this? I mean, I mean, think through this. Elisha shadowed Elijah. Joshua went with Moses up to Mount Sinai. Ruth decided not to leave Naomi. It's putting those people in your life who are ahead of you so that you will grow. All right, enough about that. Number four. Well, I want to tell you about Benjamin Franklin first. He did this. Benjamin Franklin, thanks for asking. Benjamin Franklin did this. <laughs> 
Benjamin Franklin, we know him at the end of his life as this great statesman. We know he was the oldest man that signed the Declaration of Independence. We know he did bifocals and lightning rods. We know he's a great uh, statesman. We know he got the French involved. <laughs> Had he not gotten the French involved in the American Revolutionary War at the right time, we'd be in, we probably wouldn't have won the war. So we know him at the end of his life. What we don't know is Benjamin Franklin's desperation factor was greater than his embarrassment factor. And he was always putting people in, in his life who were ahead of him. It's awesome. Let's look at what he did. He served as a clerk in the Pennsylvania General Assembly for 15 years before he ever wanted to see. He was a clerk for 15 years. Transcribed thousands of speeches before he ever delivered one. He listened to thousands of debates before he ever got into one. It was said it was easier to debate the devil than it was Benjamin Franklin. He was so good at this. He served as a decade to his, uh, as an apprentice, uh, printer to his brother, poor Richard Almanac. He was the most widely read reader, writer of the 18th century was Benjamin Franklin. Before he ever did any of that, he worked as a printer. He learned the printing business before he ever wrote his first book. I just think it's an awesome story. Here's what he said. He said, there are no gains without pains. All right, number four is adopt a growth mindset. Everyone in here has fixed mindset or a growth mindset. You only have one of two. There's no gray. A fixed mindset is, I can't really get much better. A growth mindset says, with a little bit of effort and supernatural activity, I can continue to grow. Look at the difference. A fixed mindset tries to validate itself. It is always on trial. The fixed mindset is, is you're always selling yourself. You're always trying to prove how much you know. A growth mindset tries to stretch itself, it's always learning. There's an inquisitiveness there with a growth mindset. These are all on your app if you want them. A fixed mindset is focused on outcomes, but a growth mindset is focused on inputs. What can I learn? What can you teach me? What do you know that I don't know? With a fixed mindset, when you fail, you're a failure, but not so with a growth mindset. That just didn't work. That, that simply didn't work. It just was a failed attempt. All right, here's the last one. Fight until your hand freezes to the sword. Again, this was Eliezer. This is one of my favorites. So out here, you're motivated. You want to do this because you want to be better at it, whether it's a seamstress, whether it's a carpenter, whether it's a high school coach, whether it's the floor nurse, you're motivated. In here, you're pretty motivated in here too because you love your family and you love your connect group. And you love your friends, and you love your neighbors, and you love your kids. You're pretty motivated right here. But this one right here, to master what's going on right inside of here, that's a whole other story. That's pain. That hurts. That brings up things I don't want to think about. I, that, to, to master my soul, oh my goodness, that is so hard. And it will take you fighting until your hand freezes to the sword. In Ephesians chapter 6, when it gives that whole list of the spiritual armor for God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the feet shot for the preparation of the gospel, he lists the sword. He lists the sword. He talks about the sword is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, if you want to master what's going on inside of here, there's only one way you're going to do that, and that is praying through Scripture. So you've got anger issues. You find a book that talks about all the different scriptures that refer and relate to anger, and you fight, and you fight, and you, fight, and you pray those scriptures, and you pray those scriptures, and you pray those scriptures. You got anxiety, 
anxiety. You wake up every morning or every day with anxiety. You get out a book that just lists scriptures on anxiety and you fight. And you fight till your hand freezes to the sword. And eventually anxiety goes, I'm not in this fight. This fight's too hard. And eventually anxiety will leave. You got bitterness. And rightfully so, you were a victim or whatever. You get, you get out the scriptures and you fight with the sword of the Spirit. You fight with the Word of God. And you fight until your hand freezes to the sword. You've got unforgiveness in your life? That's a tough one. Get the sword out. And look at all those verses on forgiveness. You've been forgiven. Who are you not to forgive? And you just go over them over and over and over again. You worry about money? My God to supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You fight with the sword. You try to fight in the flesh, good luck. You try to fight with just self-esteem, good luck. You take the word of God, which is the sword of God, and you fight and you fight and you fight. And you hold on, and eventually, whatever's been holding on to you is going, man, I'm not in this fight. This fight's way too hard. I'm going to run. I run for the hills, baby. And you take off. Now, I know this works. This isn't a preacher up here telling you something that just sounds good. I've done this in my life the last 35 years. I still have to fight with what's going on in here. Honestly, this out here is easy for me. I wake up charged, motivated, stoked, excited. I want to get better and better and better and better. I would take a bullet for my family. I would do anything for my family. This right here, it's a war. And it's hard. But I'm going to fight and fight and fight and fight till my hand freezes to the word of God. And I'm not giving up. I love Eliezer. What a description of a man who refused. Everybody else fled. Doesn't matter what everybody else does. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. It matters what you do. It's your life. It's your future. And you really want to master this. Because you see, when you master this, you're a whole lot more beneficial to your family. And when you master this, you're a whole lot more beneficial to your work or to your environment. So this is why we give our lives to Christ. It's called favor. We want God's favor. And every person in this room who's given their lives to Jesus, you have the favor of God. This is why you want to become a Christian. This is why today you want to give your life to Christ. Favor is what God can do for you that you cannot do for yourself. I look back on the favor of God in my life. You have royal blood flowing through your veins. Every one of us in this room, we have the favor of God if we've given our lives to Jesus Christ. And that favor is what God can do for you that you can't even... He takes you new heights, new levels. Now, the next one is the anointing. Let's go ahead and pass out communion. We're going to take communion together in just a minute. Try not to spill juice on each other as I read this next one, all right? The favor of God is one thing. That's what you have in Christ. But now it's the anointing of God is what you're going to be able to get. The anointing of God is this. Let me grab one of those. May I? Thank you. Thanks. The anointing is supernatural gifting beyond human ability divine revelation beyond human knowledge and supernatural power beyond supernatural strength let's go back to favor for just a second see these are different i don't believe in magic but i do believe in favor 
I do not believe in magic, but I do believe in God's anointing. And you've got the first one. If you're a Christian, you've got this. God wants to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can't explain some of your successes. You can't even explain how you got to where you are today. You, you can't really figure out logically some of the blessings and benefits that you have. How did I get here? How did God bless me? With my background, my circumstances, my situation, how did I? You can't even explain it, can you? You've been blessed so much with the favor of God. But now, the anointing, this is what you do. You can have more and more and more of that supernatural gifting. Beyond human ability, divine revelation, supernatural power beyond your human strength. And so, as you look at these five right now, during communion, I'm just going to give you a chance to talk to the Lord. Where are you with those five? Where do you need his help? Where do you need his, his assurance? Where, where do you need to grow? And then we'll take communion together. Just talk to the Lord. God, we thank you so much for the favor. And we pray for more of that anointing, that supernatural power. And Lord, um, all of us in this room have a desire for more, for better, for greater, for mastery. It comes from you. It comes from your throne room. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. And you told us to do this in remembrance of you. And every time we partake of this, we remember that you gave your blood. And you said, here I am. And you went to the cross for us. Take our lives. We commit them to you. Take our businesses, our jobs, our schooling, our future. Take our friends, our connect groups, our families, and take our souls. Take our souls. And let us be so full of your Holy Spirit every day we walk in power, purity, and confidence. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Let's take together.
Jesus died for you. Jesus went to a cross and shed his blood so you and I could have forgiveness of sins. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a cross at Calvary. And he took our sins and our shame and our guilt and he gave us favor. And now he wants to anoint you supernaturally.